and welcome to the Men Up Podcast. I am Christian Shabu, and normally here you would hear the voice of George Black. However, he is taking a bit of a step back here with Men Up. He's still going to be involved. You're still going to hear his voice from time to time here on the podcast and in all of the great things we're doing with Men Up. But it had been too long since we got a podcast, got some content out to y'all, and wanted to do that. was feeling really excited, really inspired to do some new content here in 2020. And so today we're going to be focusing on three different topics, really three topics that have really been exciting to me in the last several weeks. Uh, one is going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive into a new book that I started reading. It's called Bias. It's by Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. Really powerful work there. Also going to be talking about the current state of the Democratic primary, uh, just some really interesting things that we're seeing there. Uh, and then finally, got a little bit of a fun story and announcement uh, that's personal to my work here, and, and that is that I'm going to be coaching basketball here in the spring. So a wide variety of topics, but all of them are focused on really how do we level up, how do we reconsider, re-examine, and ultimately find a definition for what it is to be a man that is more equitable, more fair, and honestly just more balanced and joyful for all people involved. And so that's what we're going to be focused on in this episode, as is every episode. And who knows, maybe this isn't a men up thing. Maybe this is more of a Christian Shabu wants to do a podcast thing. And if that's the case, uh, we will certainly move that on to another platform. But until now, uh, still check out themenup.com. Obviously, give us those five stars if you're feeling like we're doing great work and that you're feeling a little bit generous to give those five stars because those are really important on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you get this podcast. Also really excited too because this is going to be the first time that I'm doing this podcast and doing this content uh, as a solo venture. So really excited to see how this is going to go and I'm so appreciative of y'all for sticking with me and for just going along for the ride because it's going to be fun. But it is a new fresh start to 2020 and I got to tell you this first month for me has been one where I didn't get off to the best start. You know, I think that there were, whether it was sickness or other challenges or, or just a lot of self-reflection entering into this new decade, I was doing a lot of, of processing, uh, but honestly was not getting in the rhythm of the habits and routines that I wanted to. And so February here is feeling like it is off to a great start. I hope that it is for y'all. I can tell you that one of, actually it's two habits, but I've sort of coupled them together. Uh, the habit that I've really been getting into and rediscovered and really found rhythm with has been journaling every day and reading every day and finding that actually doing that in the morning when I first wake up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning has been the best part. With the exception of the weekends where I spend a little bit more time go to a coffee shop here in New Haven called Coffee. Shout out to that place. It is fantastic. Best cold brew in town. Uh, and one of the books that I have started off with 2020 here is a book called Biased by Jennifer Everhart, Dr. Jennifer Everhart. And a couple things you should know. First off, uh, my goal with my reading this year, as has been for the last several years, is to find authors, whether it is fiction or nonfiction, that are unlike myself, right? So white, straight men, I am looking for authors that are not that because I'm trying to really find a different perspective for the world in general, right? Not just about things that are related to manhood and to masculinity, but just different perspectives on the world and, and just 
how we operate as humans. I think that that's really powerful. And so the two books that I've read thus far this year in 2020 have been The Water Dancer by ta Coates and then this book, Bias, by Dr. Jennifer Abrahard. So I encourage y'all to, in this year, if you have not taken this on for yourself, to seek out authors that are not like ourselves because I think that that can be a really powerful experience. Anyway, in this book, in Bias, Dr. Eberhardt is going through the fact that in general, as human beings, we operate from a place of bias. That is actually a human tendency and something that we do, right? It's a, it's a way by which we categorize information and honestly make sense of the world with all of this information we have coming in day in and day out, new information, old information, but it's so much, right? And so, so we often operate from places of bias. Now, obviously, in this book, she is focusing on how bias really in the United States of America plays out in a way that is just incredibly unfair to people of color, right? And so one of the chapters that has really had an impact on me, just read it in the last couple days here, uh, is a chapter where she opens up and is recounting a story from her graduate program. And she was on the brink a day, actually, from graduating from Harvard with her doctorate degree and had taken on a side gig of of cooking and catering for events uh, with her roommate and has a traffic stop. And that traffic stop was not for speeding or was not for doing anything harmful to the public, but was rather a what they would call a mechanical stop in so much that this stop was about uh, what looked like a registration that was out of date. And she goes on to describe that the reason for that is because just like myself, as I can remember being a teenager, that the car that I had was registered in my mom's name and that was from a different state, right? And it's actually really funny in the book, she mentions having a Nissan Sentra and I ended up having a Nissan Sentra too. So it was a a funny sort of connection that I felt reading the book. Anyway, she tells the story about how this traffic stop ends up escalating far too quickly for something that should typically just be, maybe it's a citation, but really it's, it's a warning if nothing else. And, and certainly in my, in my own experience, again, as a white straight man in the United States of America, I have had those moments where maybe it wasn't for an outdated registration, but it was whether it was for a blinking light uh, or it was for a brake light being out or, or anything like that, have had those stops, right? And, and in my experience, I've had those stops and never had to worry about being harmed or feeling threatened or, or feeling like a situation could escalate when those stops happen. And in fact, although I've never done this, I've never had to fear that when I get stopped, no matter the, the color or the orientation of the officer, that they weren't there to protect me, right? Like I would, I would still follow the rules of, of course, being respectful and, and not talking back and all those sorts of things, but I never had to fear that they would be stopping me and that this would be an escalated or harmful situation to me. And for Dr. Eberhardt, it was quite the contrary, right? She, she talked about how for her experience, you know, it's something that escalated so quickly, an outdated registration that should have just been a conversation, the language escalated quickly, uh, and soon she was in handcuffs, right? A day before she was going to be graduating from Harvard from a prestigious university that she had earned her way there uh, and was one of the top graduates, right? And the chapter goes on to talk about uh, the disproportionality of these traffic stops that are fairly routine and how oftentimes for people of color, they become escalated 
and become, whether it's fines or escalating to jail time, or as we have seen over the last years and decades, death over these simple traffic stops, simply because there's a bias for people of color as it relates to their treatment from law enforcement. Uh, one of the things that's been going through my mind now, not just for the last several months, but for the last several years, honestly, is, is how can I take a step back and understand my privilege as a white, straight man in the United States of America. And you'll hear me speak about that when we're talking about understanding my manhood and my masculinity and my power and privilege in this world because that's where I'm operating from. And it immediately made me think about the moments in which I've been on the road driving. I don't drive as much as I used to uh, because I live here in the city. I don't have a car anymore. I decided to get rid of it for environmental and also uh, for economic reasons for myself. But once in a while, we'll get a rental car or get a car share car, and I'm still driving around. I can, I can think about all of these moments when I have been on the road and gotten frustrated. Not to the extent of road rage. I think I've, I've become a calmer adult and don't have that kind of road rage that perhaps I had when I was younger. But nevertheless, experience this frustration on the road of people driving the speed limit or people perhaps putting a blinker on way too far in advance, but making sure that they are being cautious enough on the road. And every time in my mind, uh, I just think to myself, oh my God, why can't these people drive like I'm driving, right? That, that's the thought that goes through my mind. Because in reality, things like the speed limit, for example, that comes across to me more as a suggestion. That, that's honestly how I, I had been taught, you know, what it is like to drive, right? Of course, it is a limit. It is a law. We understand that. But also, so long as you're not weaving in and out of traffic and doing all of these sorts of things, it's just sort of a, a suggestion of staying near the speed limit. I get that privilege, right? Because at the end of the day, if I do get stopped, I don't have to worry about that stop escalating. That's not my history. That's not my bias, right? There, there, is, there is, on the flip side, such a history and bias for people of color as it's related to law enforcement where, of course, someone of color who's driving, of course, they might want to abide by the speed limit or put a blinker on that is well in advance of when they need to turn or goes from one lane to the other in a very slow and methodical way because the alternative is if they get stopped, this could actually be something that escalates well beyond what it should ever have to be. And of course, I've past people, and I'm sure some of them have been men that look just like me or women that are, are white, but I've also passed people that have been people of color, right? And, and what it reminds me of is that that is a privilege, right? The, the idea that I can look at the speed limit as a suggestion, I can look at these rules of the road as suggestions, things that are nice to follow, but ultimately if I break that rule, that the worst case scenario is I get stopped perhaps have a conversation, maybe get a citation, maybe have to pay a little bit of money, but that's it. I don't have to worry about any further escalation. And so I say that because I think that that is, one, a practice of looking at where privilege manifests in even the smallest places, right? Like anytime we have that feeling of, oh, if only people could operate in this way like I do, I think those are really powerful moments for us to step back as men, for us to step back as white men, for us to step back as white straight men, to step back and say, hold on a second. What is the place of privilege, the lens of privilege that I get to operate from that allows me to say that? And what might be the block, the, the obstacle for people who are unlike me 
to operate in that same way. Now, I know this is a small observation, but it's something certainly that came up for me and I, and I encourage others like myself or anybody who feels moved by this to, to take this on in our new year, to take on this idea of any time we come to a place of, oh, if only they could operate or be like me to step back and really understand our privilege. So want to give a big shout out to Dr. Eberhardt. Thank you for this book. Uh, also encourage folks to read it. It's called Bias. Uh, if not reading that book, find some books of authors that are unlike yourself. Some, find some books from people that offer a different perspective than the lens you see every day. It is, of course, the winter season, but even more important, at least I think it's more important, it is Democratic primary season. And we are well in the midst of it, just a week after the Iowa caucuses, and now we are on to the New Hampshire primary. Now, for somebody from New Hampshire, growing up in New Hampshire, this was a big deal back in the day when I lived there. And, and still, even though I don't live in New Hampshire anymore, that idea of having the New Hampshire primary uh, is always super interesting to me. It's sort of the thing that always signals like, oh, it's time to really get engaged. And so leading into the primary and leading into the debate that happened on Friday in New Hampshire, there's a lot of conversation about Bernie Sanders and because he had had what is essentially a victory from the Iowa caucus, although that was certainly a mess and that's saying it lightly, but still Bernie came out as somebody who could say he was victorious there. It was sort of a foregone conclusion that he was going to be victorious in New Hampshire. A lot of the narrative that was coming out from some of our uh, media outlets, whether they're online or on TV, was that, oh, well, it's because of Bernie being from Vermont and Vermont and New Hampshire are sister states. And so, of course, people in New Hampshire are really energized for him. And the first thing I thought was like, well, hold on a second. Elizabeth Warren is a senator from Massachusetts. Massachusetts is also a sister state, if you want to consider it that way, a, a state that, you know, is right up next to New Hampshire. So why wouldn't that be some of the narrative? And then, you know, we watched the debate on Friday and really fascinating to see at the end of that debate uh, that when we look at the amount of time that people had to talk, you know, the top three people for that evening were all men in the debate, right? It was it was Bernie. It was uh, Pete Buttigieg, it was Joe Biden, and then you've got Liz Warren and Amy Klobuchar. And the second thing that struck me as really odd was the narrative after that debate was that, oh, Elizabeth Warren had a consistent night, but she didn't have any standout moments. And I watched that debate and, and I thought, much like I have from previous debates, she stood out from her consistency in messaging, from a bold vision, uh, from what I think is a really powerful command on stage at all times. And then the following night on Saturday, I ended up watching C-SPAN because what does somebody do for fun on Saturday night but watch C-SPAN? And they have the McIntyre Shaheen uh, dinner, which was this opportunity for the candidates to each get five or 10 minutes sort of in center stage uh, in this massive arena up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Two things struck me about that. First off, I'm watching this telecast of this event on C-SPAN and this arena up in Manchester, the last time I even thought about this arena was myself and several guys who had an acapella group 
back in our early 20s, ended up being able to sing the national anthem at a semi-pro hockey game up there in Manchester. And that was the last time I had thought about that arena and suddenly I'm watching this event for the Democratic primary season up in New Hampshire. But then the second thing was, again, Liz Warren comes out and just has an utter command of the stage for those five minutes that she has. The several guys that came before her, right, had notes that they certainly had on the podium, and I'm not holding that against them at all because they had some powerful presentations and powerful things to say, but she did not have those notes. And perhaps there were teleprompters, but again, she was so well prepared in a bold vision and a command of the stage and an ability to connect with the audience. And when they panned to the audience, it was so clear that the majority of people in that arena were most excited for Elizabeth Warren. Now, why do I say all this? Because I think so much of the coverage is just so biased for our male candidates. And, and I want to be clear here, like from my perspective, the political part of this, I am excited and eager if the candidate is any one of these people and particularly Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But when I look at it, you think about how prepared Elizabeth Warren is. It's just incredible to me that there's even a narrative that somehow she's not competitive in this state or not competitive nationally. And it's so important to have a diversity in our media diet, right? Not to just rely on the standard networks and not just rely on the one or two sites we maybe go on online, but to get a really broad understanding of the landscape of, of politics, but also issues broadly, right? So maybe sometimes we do need to tune into C-SPAN on a Saturday night to really get uh, an understanding of of where a political situation is, a topic or primary is. And as men in general, I urge all of us to understand just how much of a preference is given in the media to men, right? And, and maybe some of it is unconscious. I, I don't know if this is being done deliberately or not. And maybe some of it is unconscious, subconscious, whatever it is. But we need to recognize that so often women who are incredibly prepared for a position for leadership often have to be twice as good, work twice as hard to get half of the credit and attention. And so I think the only way for us to to resolve that or to make progress on that is for us as people to really be critical about the media we're consuming, but also understanding the landscape by which women and people of color are operating because oftentimes they are operating from a place and from a system that is unfair for them. All right, we're gonna finish out the episode here with something I'm really excited about. And in fact, it is a dream come true for me. Now, since I was a teenager, one of the goals I've had for my life is at some point to coach basketball. Basketball has had such a profound impact on my life, team basketball specifically, because I had the opportunity and privilege to one, have a fantastic coach, shout out to Tom Saunders, no longer with us, but forever in my heart. Uh, I got to have him as a coach all four years of my high school experience. 
And before that, I got to play basketball with the same nine guys since we were middle school students, since we first got the opportunity to play organized team basketball. And it is something that has taught me so many incredible lessons, built so many powerful relationships for me, uh, and cultivated a passion for, for basketball that I've carried with me throughout my entire life. Don't play as much now as, as I'd like to. Uh, it seems to get a little bit harder to play organized ball as we get older here. Uh, but nevertheless, really excited. An opportunity finally came up for me to coach basketball. And so I've been reflecting on what do I know about coaching. In, in my everyday job, I coach young people around their own goals and their passions and the things that they want to do in their lives. But certainly coaching a sport is a little bit different. You got to have some plays. You got to know your offense, your defense. You got to know how to get young people prepared for whatever the sport is, the rigors of the game, and get them mentally prepared as well, not just physically. And so I've been doing a little bit of reflecting there and, and I've certainly told folks in my community about this coaching opportunity. And it's been really interesting to, to hear some of the feedback I've gotten. Certainly, everybody's been really supportive and excited for me, but as we've been talking about, oh, well, what kind of coaching, how should, I, how should I lead as a coach? You know, a lot of the sentiment has been, oh, well, you know, you better make sure that you're pushing them physically uh, until, you know, they, they can't run any harder or you got to make them puke in the first weeks or even when I've told them I'm coaching, they're like, oh, they don't know what they're in for. You're going to push them real hard because people know how passionate I am about basketball. And then there have also been some folks that have said, oh, well, you know, you've got to be hard on them. You know, sometimes you got to yell at them. Sometimes you got to tell them how bad they are in order for them to, to get out of bad habits. And again, as I started towards the beginning of this episode talking about that I need to confront every day in my work, in my daily habits, and in my daily interactions in life, the lens by which I operate from, which is that of being a white, straight man, right? And so as I was thinking about going into that first meeting with my team, I wanted to make sure that I made them aware and so that they could hold me accountable and so that I could hold myself accountable that there's a particular way I was going to coach. And it's not throwing any shade to any of the previous coaching. I honestly don't know what their previous coaching has been, both at the school that I'm at, but also in their life. I don't even know if they've played organized basketball to this point, right? But what I do know is that I can step into that space and what I told them, I am not going to be the coach that yells at you. I am not going to be the coach that makes you feel bad about making a mistake. To be clear, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fix those mistakes and we are going to work hard and out of the working hard is where the fun is going to come and we're going to hold a high expectation, but we're also going to support each other to get there. And that's the kind of coaching that I'm really excited about. And frankly, the only kind of coaching I believe that I can be doing, right? Again, as a white straight man in front of an audience and a team of young people that are young people of color. I am clear that in my life, and I want to make choices as such, that lead to the place where I am not typical experience that they have of a white man, right? Or the images that we get of too often white men yelling, being emotional, as coaches, as people, I need to be something different. And so in order to be something different, I needed to declare to myself, to them, I've asked those young people to have our commitments that I laid out signed. And I need to have those commitments signed too. Well, this has been the first episode in 2020 in this new decade 
of Men Up. Please, if you like what we're doing here, if you liked this one-hander, this one-man show here uh, of the Men Up podcast, please like, rate, share. If you're ever wanting to talk about these topics that we've had in this episode or any other topics that we've had with Men Up, I'm always open to that conversation so that we can ultimately all level up.